Hello and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your host, Gary, stuck in the mud here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I'm joined by my lovely Sheila and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Good day, mate, I guess. Well, I figured I could annoy pretty much all of our Australian listeners in the first two minutes. Well, it sounds like you're a British guy trying to be fake an American, uh, Australian accent. Well, technically, I'm an American faking a British accent that's faking an Australian accent. There's so many levels to my accents. Oh, my God. But we're going to drop the accents now and continue on with the show. Whew, thank goodness. Well, with that in mind, Goldie Ann, did you hear about the kangaroo with glasses? Kangaroo with glasses. Okay, this one's got to be easy. See, kangaroos, they box and they... Okay, that has nothing to do with glasses. I don't know. What? Well, he had to go to the hophthalmologist. Oh, dear God. I have no words for that one. That's just, yeah, no. Well, other than our humor so far, today's episode involves terrifying encounters with a monster from the bogs that attacks its victims by luring them in by the sounds of a screaming child. Unlike my jokes, these stories may be upsetting to some of our listeners. Wait, 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 wait. You don't think your jokes are upsetting to some of the listeners? I think they're the highlight of some of our episodes. Oh, dear God. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. But first, a word from our sponsor. Now, Goldie Ann, in 1788, the very first ships from England arrived in the Sydney Cove of Australia. Among its freight was a human cargo of convicts, farmers, and merchants. These families brought with them the folklore and superstitions about the paranormal beings of their original homes. Why did they bring convicts with them? Well, that was kind of their way of colonizing the new country in England. <laughs> they couldn't get anyone to volunteer to go, so they kind of forced people to go. Oh, okay. It was kind of that saying of go to jail or go to war. Well, here it was go to jail or go to Australia. I'd rather go to Australia. Well, And that's what most of them did. <clears throat> and these people traveled across the seas all the way to Australia, and they brought with them their stories about fairies and leprechauns and banshees and such. But what they discovered when they got here is that the creatures of traditional Europe did not fit so easily into the new land. The outback of Australia already had its own collection of creatures and ghosts. It was these that caught the imaginations of the new immigrants and grew into their own national legend. Yeah, what doesn't kill you in Australia will only make you stronger. That is true, and among them, none was more well-known and feared than the Australian monster of the lagoons and the deep water holes. Mm-hmm. Whenever there was a disappearance, there was no doubt that it was this creature that was responsible. The lakes rumored to be the monster's lair because places to become feared and the area of the wilderness to avoid. The original natives, the aborigines, described the creature to be an amphibious animal with different characteristics depending on the location. The versions are widely diverse, but a few descriptions of the animal are certain that it's big, 
terrifying, and deadly. In some, it is a gigantic snake, sometimes a species of rhinoceros, with a smooth, pulpy skin and the head like that of a calf. But rhinos are good. Well, not this one. Okay. Other natives describe it as a huge pig with its body yellow crossed with black stripes. Regardless of the variations, it has always been more than an animal, a being of the supernatural. The new immigrants were warned that the creature enticed its prey with cryptic calls, sometimes resembling a lost child or baby in the darkness. These ethereal voices in the dark would draw in men or beasts down to the water, where it would grab the body and pull it under the waves without a sound or struggle. Victims would disappear forever, and the few eyewitnesses to survive seeing the creature said that it emitted a rough, bellowing cry that made them think twice about approaching the water's edge at night. So, Goldie Ann, join us as we dare the outback to talk about the Australian supernatural cryptid known as the Bunyip. So, you said near the water, so anything like a siren? There would be some similarities, but sirens are usually more mermaid or humanoid. This is more animalistic and beastly. Uh. But the siren call does have some familiarities. And usually sirens hypnotize their people. This just tricks them. And it's been around forever. In fact, it is one of the first legends of the Aborigines. As in Chapter 1, The Rainbow Serpent Curse. Oh, I've seen that movie. It's freaky. This is different. (laughs) In this one, the very first Bunyip, according to Aboriginal legend, was a man by the name of Bunyip. And it was said that these people were given everything they needed to survive, but they had one rule of the land, that they could not eat certain animals. These were totem animals, or sacred. Well, this Bunyip decided that he was going to break the laws of the land and ate one of the sacred totem animals. Now, when it was discovered by an envoy of the rainbow serpent, the creator god, he was transformed into an evil spirit, a creature shunned by all. In fact, Bunyip became synonymous with demon. The creature, man, then ran off into the waters And as the Maleficent spirit fled to the black waters, he took his rage out on all humans, devouring any who crossed his path. Now, some Aboriginal tales also tell of the Bunyip turning women it catches into water spirits, who served the Bunyip by enticing men into watery graves. Sirens. Exactly. See how you tied that in there even before you knew it. Look at that. Stories of the Bunyip since then act as a warning to children not to wander off at night near the water's edge. Some of the most common stories involve a woman who goes down to the lagoon to fetch water at night, foolishly only to become attacked by the beast with large canine teeth and claws that rip off her arm before dragging her beneath the water. Children in the stories are always taken to its cave, Sometimes, the hero of the folktale is able to save the child by rubbing dead body fat on their skin (laughs) in order to sneak into the lair because it smells like something had already died. 
These heroes then could rescue the would-be victim and the child is always returned to the village a little bit smarter. Even attempting to harm the supernatural creature is met with warnings in the stories. One story is of a captain who fired his rifle upon one creature when his steamer was trapped by the enormous beast. He didn't listen to the warnings, but was able to kill the bunyip with his gun. Afterwards, the captain became deathly ill, oozing sores covering his entire body as he slipped into delirium in his deathbed. He suffered for two weeks before he finally died. So many of the stories that the Aborigines shared with the Europeans was as warnings not to go out in the dark, not to go near the water's edge because this monster would get them. Kind of the same thing that we have everywhere. Right. You try and basically scare your children into listening to behavior. I, I did that. So right now, the story of the bunyip comes across more as a cautionary tale than an actual creature. That would change in Chapter 2, Bones Found. An interesting thing about the bunyip is that it is one of the few cryptids whose existence was at one point supported by physical proof. Two early explorers made an accidental discovery in the colony of New South Wales in the year of 1818. Their party happened upon some highly unusual skeletal remains that they found on the shore of Lake Bathurst, which is a shallow lake located near the eastern coast of Australia. So as the country was becoming more and more explored, two men were walking across this area of Lake Bathurst and found bones on the shores of a lake. Hmm. Hamilton Hume and James Meehan described the bones as resembling that of a hippopotamus or a manatee. But they were adamant that these remains may have been similar, but they were completely different from any other animal otherwise identified. The Philosophical Society of Australia offered to pay for Hamilton's expenses if he would return to the area and recover a live specimen of this marvelous new creature. But Hume was unable to repeat the journey, and so his discovery soon faded into legend. Why was he unable to repeat the journey? Because he it lied? It never really says, but lied. yeah, there's always that tinge that, yeah, he kind of wanted to protect his reputation and knew he wouldn't be able to catch a live specimen. I don't even know the guy, and he lied. Well, more bones have been found. Ooh. In fact, in January of 1846, a strange and unfamiliar-looking skull was found by a settler on the banks of the Murrumbidgee River, near Baranault, New South Wales. Hmm. He showed the bones to a group of natives who immediately claimed to recognize the skull as that belonging to the bunyip. The skull was taken back and was identified by several experts as being that of a deformed fetal skull of a foal or a calf. So unfortunately, the bunyip turned out to be a misshapen baby horse or a baby cow. Sad. Very sad. Huh? Very sad. Very sad. Despite this, the Australian Museum in Sydney still chose to put the skull on display for two days in July of 1847 as the skull of a bunyip. Gotta get that money somehow. The sensationalism of it 
was reported by a local newspaper that many of the visitors who lined up to view the skull then shared their own encounters with the bunyip amongst themselves. So once they saw this skull, they were convinced that the animal was real, and then all of a sudden, everyone had their own encounter with such a creature. Like Bigfoot. It has been argued that the discoveries of these unfamiliar-looking remains could be attributed to naturally occurring birth defects of some of the larger Australian fauna. But there is also another discussion that some of the bones that are found thought to be bunyips could be potential that they are the remains of a recently extinct creature. For example, the Pliocene Epoch is a period that ended only 12,000 years ago. So these, this is the time period where we think of the Ice Age, or the very end of the Ice Age. And during this time, Australia was home to a variety of gigantic animals, such as the Dipotrodon, which was a marsupial lion-like animal that stood over six feet tall at the shoulders, and it weighed six tons. Wow. So this animal did live in Australia, and it is possible that some of the bones they found could have belonged to it. It is also possible that it could have been a, and I'm probably going to have difficulty pronouncing this, an animal that was known as the Dromo, the Dromonorthids, which is a flightless bird that towered at heights of over 9 to 10 feet in the air. <laughs> so imagine an emu or an ostrich and exaggerate its height even taller. No, I don't think I will. That's kind of scary. <laughs> Very I scary. I don't like birds. Well, both animals match the various descriptions by the natives of the bunyip. In 1871, Dr. George Bennett also forwarded a theory that the bunyip is a racial memory of the natives' encounters with these prehistoric creatures because both the original natives and these animals did live at the exact same time period. The marsupial lion, an Australian creature weighing up to 350 pounds, did not become extinct until 46,000 years ago. This overlaps a time period with Australian humans of 14,000 years. So could the Aborigines be remembering the marsupial lion as their bunyip? Or could the bunyip be a creature that survived its extinction to still survive in the outback of Australia? a descendant marsupial lion, or an evolved version that is still on the hunt for man. Chapter 3, The Escaped Convict Now, I told you before, Goldian, that a large number of the original Australian immigrants were made up of convicts. Right. Well, the most compelling information regarding the bunyip comes from William Buckley, who was found guilty of theft and sent to an Australian prison colony in 1803. He escaped the colony, fleeing into the desert alone. And there, in the wilderness, the authorities assumed he had died. But in reality, what happened was, he joined a group of the natives and lived amongst them for almost 30 years. So he basically wasn't going to work for the government as a convict and decided to become a friend to the Aborigines. Eventually, he returned to the British society and claimed to have had many encounters with the Bunyip during the 30 years he spent living with the Watharong people. And he wrote of these creatures in his 1852 biography. 
He claimed in his book that they had been found in many inland lakes and were covered in a dusky gray feathers. Buckley also insisted that the animal was known to have supernatural powers of malign abilities of causing sickness and famine if angered by the interference of human beings. He heard of an aboriginal woman being killed by one, but was warned never to approach the creature as it had the ability to sound like a child or woman in distress and lure him to it. And he said it was covered in feathers? Of what looked like dusky gray feathers. It's not what I kept picturing. <laughs> well, he was tempted to spear one of the creatures so that he could preserve its hide or provide a skeleton for the scientific end. But... but he didn't dare carry out this plan, and he had two very good reasons. Care to guess what they were? Um, he didn't want everyone to know he lied. <laughs> that is a possibility. <laughs> That's probably reason, reason number three. But the first reason was that the Bunyip was noted by the Watharong people as being extremely strong and ferocious, and that his possibilities of killing one were slim. Second... His native host would surely turned on Buckley and kill him if he had attacked a Bunyip. They would have murdered him in retribution for bringing the supernatural wrath of the Bunyip down upon their people. Okay, well, that's a good reason not to. So instead, all we have are his stories that he put in his biography. But another thing about Buckley's stories is that many naturalists have taken the descriptions provided by him and suggested that what he may have seen was actually a dugong. As Australia does have the largest population of this large aquatic creature, the dusky features actually could have been algae growing on the slow-moving skin of the creatures. Okay, what, what is a dugong? I, I recognize the name, but I can't picture it. Well, that's I was going to ask you that, because here in Florida, you and I see some creatures that are in the same family as the dugong. We know them as manatees. Oh, okay. So a dugong is an Australian equivalent of a manatee. Okay. And you and I have swam with manatees before. We've kayaked beside them. And you've seen the algae that grows on the manatees, right? Yeah, one was coming straight at me and wouldn't leave me alone. I what? saw it very clearly. Well, just imagine if these natives had seen such a creature and saw algae growing on it and assumed it was like a feathery type uh, ex extremity on the skin. And so some of the naturalists think that some of the descriptions fit these dugongs. According to them, high sea tides during the summer months may have provided access from the oceans of these creatures or other whale species into the inner Australia where they become trapped. As the villagers had never seen such a creature before, the harmless animals would stir supernatural fears. So could Buckley have seen a seal or a dugong or some other type of marine animal that got trapped in the Australian lagoons? There have also been other stories written about the Bunyip from experiences of the Europeans as they traveled across Australia. Chapter 4, The Young Girl in the Bunyip. Now, sightings of the malignant creature became more commonplace as well as the evidence of its supernatural abilities to attract its prey. Rosa Campbell Praed had published a short story entitled The Bunyip in 1891, and it told of her experiences as a young girl in Australia. Some of the stories that she told included the supernatural creature. 
This short story relayed the fears that the creature had not only been keeping children away from the bogs at night, but even the bravest of men. According to her, she and her brother Joe were traveling once upcountry one night in November. Since there was no hotels or other accommodations, they had agreed to meet the drivers traveling with their supplies and furniture at a certain small lagoon, which was known as One-Eyed Waterhole. <laughs> there, they decided they would camp under the tents. They had eaten their meal of beef and hot johnny cakes all together when the men began telling shearing stories, which is basically shaving sheep, which was a common occupation there in Australia. Sounds like a big party. It kind of was. And as stories grew and grew and the night got later. They got more interesting. Well, being due to being in the wilderness and the loneliness of these skies. Can you imagine just stories about shearing sheep? Not exactly the most exciting to me. Exactly. For me, it's when the talk began to have about eerie things, such as the bunyip and all its supernatural horrors. There we go. Now we're getting to the ghost stories. And most of the men that Rosa was traveling with had had some bunyip tale to relate. And they talked as a chill seemed to creep over the whole group. And one could almost fancy that the horrible monster was casting its spell upon them from the dark swamp close by. As the night was getting late, it was discovered that the water containers were empty and they all wanted some water to make some fresh tea. However, no one seemed inclined to go down to the lagoon to fetch it. When at that very moment, there came a curious sound from the water. They couldn't tell exactly where it was, but after an interview of moments or two, it struck her heart that it might be the cry of some dying animal or of a child in dire distress or agony. Everyone in the camp started and looked anxiously at each other, waiting for the sound to come again, and not quite liking to confess that they were scared. One of the men exclaimed nervously, Say, what's that? But that strange, horrible cry from the lagoon broke the night silence again, and it was more prolonged, more certain than it had been before. It began low, in a sort of hoarse, muffled groan, and it swelled into a louder, shriller note, which they each imagined might be the strange, broken cry of a child in pain or terror. By Jove, I tell you what I believe it is, said her, her brother Joe excitedly. That's some kid lost in the bush. Come along, you fellows. Which we all know in the horror movies is the lead into something bad happening. <laughs> now her brother darted down towards the swamp and the rest of them followed him closely. It must be said that none of them were deterred at that moment by any thought of the bunyip or its supernatural powers. They were focused on finding the child. Long Charlie, the most practical of the party, waited behind until he could detach a rough lantern and then he caught up with them at the edge of the swamp. The sound had ceased now, and everyone peered through the cold, clinging mist among the brown, twisted branches of the trees. Under their feet, the ground, which had been trodden into deep, odd-shaped ruts by the cattle, gave way at every step. They could hear the soft waves as they shivered with the slimy ooze mounting over their boots and trickling in. 
Rosa wrote that she didn't know how they got through the deeper part of the swamp without getting bogged down. But they did it at last and reached a dry area that was straggled down to the water's edge. Here was dense and in places impenetrable foliages. Rough boulders were lying at the foot of the ridge and creepers hung in with withers from the trees. They did not know which way to turn for the cry of the child had ceased and the dead silence of the scrub was like that of the grave. They waited for a minute or two, but the call did not come again. Long Charlie flashed his lantern along the wall of the green plants, and stumbling over stones and logs, they walked as well as they could. They paused every now and then, straining their ears for the voice that had led them to this point. Once it sounded faint, but thrillingly plaintive, and guided them on. Finally, at last, there came a break in the jungle, a narrow track piercing the heart of the scrub, and a wider break, with Charlie in advance. Suddenly, the moon, which had risen while they were in the swamp, sent a shaft of light down through the opening, and showed them, a little way ahead, where the path widened out, so that they could stop together on a tiny plateau. In the center stood a great white bottle tree. Its trunk was perfectly bare, bulging out in the center. It gave each of them a strange, creepy feeling to see this huge white thing rising in the midst of the gloom and the solitude. Worse, there was something else on the grass. Some small white form, and then Mick, moving a little nearer, cried with a sob in his brawny throat. It's Nancy, little Nancy, Sam Duffy's girl from Coffin Lid. The group couldn't account for it, but they found a child deep in the middle of the lagoon, and she had been dead for some hours. So they declared that the cry they heard must have come from the bunyip. There was no doubt to any of their minds that the creature had mimicked the calls of the long-dead girl to lure them into its clutches. Only the numbers of the group and the light from Long John's lantern prevented them from becoming its next victim. <laughs> so there's been a lot of ghost stories involving the bunyip and luring people out there, such as you hear here. Yeah, you'd think with as many scary things as there are in Australia, they wouldn't need to add any. <laughs> this is true. I mean, between the gators and the snakes and giant spiders, Australia is pretty deadly all by itself. So, so to throw in a supernatural creature able to lure you to its home is probably a little over the top. Yeah. Now, there have been other pieces of evidence besides just writings that have supported the bunyip. Chapter 5, The Chalicum Bunyip. The belief in the bunyip had been so strong with the natives of Australia that the Australian magazine covered an article about a man-made structure known as the Chalicum Bunyip in 1851. What the Chalicum Bunyip is, it's an outline of a creature that was killed on the banks of the creek near Chalicum Station in Victoria, Australia. According to the story, a bunyip had leaped out of the deep water and seized the man from a passing group of natives, killing him instantly and dragging him under the water. 
One of the hapless victim's companions, his brother, brought the bunyip down with repeated thrusts of a spear. The creature crawled out of the water and died on the banks of it. Soon after this incident, the locals decided to cut an outline of the dead beast on the turf to mark the event. So you know how you see in a lot of the movies where they do the tape outline of a murder victim? Right. Now you see now you know what the Chalakam Bunyip is. So here they they designed one and they marked it onto the shores of this lake. Now the image in question depicts a large semi-aquatic animal with two flippers that resembles a seal when seen from one angle, but it does look like a large flightless bird, much like an emu if you look at it from another angle. So now in, we don't have bones or a picture, but we do have a trace outline of what the shape of a bunyip is. This would become a tradition to the natives as they would retrace the geoglyph every year for an unknown period. The Chalakam Bunyip still existed as late as 1867 when the site was visited by Mr. R.E. Johns, the clerk of Petty Sessions in the small settlement of Munambul. Mr. Jones drew a sketch of the outline that closely matched a drawing made in 1855 by George Henry Wathen. He was a scientist who made a detailed measurements of the outline and put the size of this creature at 28 feet from tip to tip. So either it's a very large seal or a very large emu, regardless, whatever the creature is, it's marked down as being uh, huge in uh, outline. He also made a map of the outline's location, but unfortunately the area was soon settled by new European arrivals, and although the outline was fenced off for a period, the land was eventually used as grazing pasture for the sheep, and the outline was lost forever. Hmm. So, which is kind of a pity. It'd be kind of nice if it still existed. Yeah, that's quite a long time ago, though. Chapter 6 the bunyip of today. Today! As is common with a lot of cryptids, as it gets into more and more modern age, fear is usually overtaken by uh, other emotions or commercialism. The bunyip of modern times has morphed from a figure of fear into that of fun, and by the 1900s had become the star in a collection of children's books. Author Annie Rental had published her fairy story, Molly's Bunyip, about a uniquely Australian children's fable that combined European stories of fairies with elements of Aboriginal mythology. So here we have someone who combined the European folklores with the Aborigines. The Bunyip is no longer the terror, but a friendly spirit of the bush that helps lost children find their way home and the illustrations depict the bunyip as an ethereal ghost-like being rather than a monster with large teeth. Bunyips would continue to appear in Australian children's book since then to include 1973 Bunyips of Barclays Creek about a lonely and pitiful bunyip who ponders his place in the world as he is an outcast of both human and animal worlds. This poor, sad bunyip travels Australia looking for a friend. 
He is a sympathetic character, and the reader becomes happy when he meets a friend by the end of the story and is no longer alone. Now, even with all these friendly bunyips, we also do have a couple of the more terrifying ones, as they are still depicted as the villain in some of the movies that come out from Australia and some of the more current stories, especially ghost stories and movies. So we now have the bunyip from being the story to keep children from wandering at night to now being a friend to children to now being a mascot to many of the towns and local sports teams. Wow, it's come a long way. Well, in closing, Goldian, what do you think about the bunyip? Um, I want to just touch on the last part of it where she makes a children's story out of it. Okay. So you have this creature that more or less hunts people. So be good, stay away from it, don't walk around at dark at night. You know, keeping the kids safe with this. To, oh my God, no, he's really a nice little spirit. It's okay to talk to him. And then more children go disappearing. <laughs> it, it is kind of bad, but um, it also falls in line with the Grimm stories. Yeah. You and I are both very familiar with how the stories of the Brothers Grimm were originally. Right. You know, Cinderella's sisters actually cut off their toes or their heels to try and fit into the glass slipper, which is not in the Disney version. <laughs> so us as a society now, yeah, we have kind of whitewashed and watered down a lot of the scarier aspects of these kind of stories. But we do have to remember, Australia is a land where the impossible animals are possible. I mean, for almost 100 years, scientists argued over the existence of the platypus. Right. You know, a mammal that lays eggs and has the bill of a duck? That seemed impossible. And academics refused to believe that such an animal was real. Kangaroos hop around on, you know, two large hind legs and carry their babies in a pouch. These are all incredible stories. It's hard to believe, but they're pretty common there in Australia. So for me, it would not be impossible to imagine that a creature that evolved from the marsupial lion is still prowling along the edges of the waterways looking for easy prey. Right. So will we ever find one? Who knows? Because Australia is not as explored as the United States is. And even the United States has large pockets of wilderness that have never been touched by man. So just imagine what the outback is like. Right. So should you hear the cries of a woman or a child at night in the outback? I would recommend you pause before you rush to the water. <laughs> I mean, you might well be on your way of becoming the next victim of the bunyip. Now, before we go, I want to remind everyone that we are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about the bunyip. Do you believe that a creature lurks within the waters of Australia? Share with us. You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram and Twitter, plus we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share. We hope you enjoyed our story of the bunyip, and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, watch the outback waterways a little more closely, and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, mate. I thought you said you weren't going to do that anymore. Um, it slipped. See, bye guys.